Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? The word West is often used as a shorthand to describe liberal democracies in Europe and perhaps in Asia too, such that we'll often talk about the West's attitude to China or the West's relations with China. But this is at best a lazy shorthand, and by the way, I'm guilty of this too, as of course you all have heard on this podcast. But it's lazy because there is actually no unified West on China. Not really. So on this episode, I wanted to disaggregate that idea, focusing especially on the continent of Europe, to understand exactly how different nation states or multilateral institutions, or even factors within a country, have differing views and approaches on China, and what Beijing does in response to that. This was made amply clear by Macron's visit to Beijing earlier this year, when he was treated like a VIP, while European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was essentially sat at the kiddie table. So my guest for this week is Noah Barkin, who's a senior advisor at the Rhodium Group, an independent research provider. He's also associated with the German Marshall Fund, with whom he writes the very popular Watching China in Europe newsletter. Noah, welcome to Chinese Whispers. There's a lot to get through, so I wondered if we can just start by explaining a very popular term these days called de-risking. Have a listen to this as Ursula von der Leyen in a March speech. I believe it is neither viable nor in Europe's interest to decouple from China. Our re- relations are not black or white, and our response cannot be either. And this is why we need to focus on de-risk, not decouple. Now, Noah, as you know, since then this term has become quite popular across Europe, and even the Biden administration has started to use it. At its most basic, what does it mean? Well, I think people will have different interpretations of what de-risking is. My understanding of de-risking is a, f- a few things. One, it's about reducing uh, dependencies. So Europe has major dependencies on China, uh, also uh, other other countries for critical minerals, for example. So reducing those dependencies is one priority. Then it's about resilient supply chains, which is related, but that is really something that is driven by companies making sure that they have diversified their supply chains, that they are not relying on one source for certain critical inputs. Then I think it's about critical infrastructure, protecting critical infrastructure, whether it's uh, ports or Uh, 5G networks. And uh, I think maybe the last component of this is technology transfers. So making sure that uh, certain sensitive technologies are not uh, getting into the hands of countries that will then use them to bolster their military. So I think those are the four components uh, of de-risking as I understand them. We are expecting an economic security communication soon from the European Commission, uh, and we may get more clarity about how they're thinking about it, but that's how I I see it. Mm -hmm. When you caveat that this is how you see it, is there disagreement in the EU over what those four components should look like? Well, I think there is consensus about reducing 
dependencies about making supply chains more resilient. I think there's an emerging consensus on protecting critical infrastructure. I'm based in Berlin. Germany doesn't have a great record on this, particularly in terms of the 5G network, where I think uh, about two-thirds of the the radio access network, the periphery is Chinese suppliers, Huawei. And and we also saw the German government... uh, give a green light to Costco, the Chinese shipping giant, to take a stake in a terminal in the Hamburg port recently, which was also critical infrastructure. So uh, I, I would say that this, um, while we don't have a great uh, track record in a country like Germany and some other European countries, this is also becoming a consensus, not hugely controversial anymore. I think where Uh, There are big differences of opinion is on uh, the final pillar, which is technology transfers. How far should governments be going uh, in setting red lines for companies uh, in terms of what they send to a country like China, what they do in China in terms of R&D collaboration, and uh, what areas do they invest in. So this is a debate about outbound investment uh, screening, something that uh, Washington is, I think, more advanced on, but something that von der Leyen has also mentioned the need to think about uh, introducing some restrictions on outbound investment uh, uh, of companies and, and also strengthening export controls. So this is stuff like, you know, military technology or perhaps semiconductors being exported to China. I mean, that that seems, I think, to some quite a natural thing to do. And as you say, the American administration have gone a bit further. So why is there resistance to doing stuff like that? Well, I think if we're talking about clear products that go into military end uses, then there's not so much uh, a, a difference of opinion there. I think The problem is that we have new foundational technologies like semiconductors and new technologies, quantum computing, uh, artificial intelligence, where uh, these are not sort of traditional uh, dual use products, uh, but they are used by uh, militaries all over the world. So, or they will be. So I think it's a question of where you draw the line uh, Mm. and, you know, do you go beyond dual use or do you need to rethink what is dual use? And I guess there are business interests here as well, right? Because the Dutch have some of the most advanced lithographic printers, which the Americans don't want them to give to China. That's right. I mean, that's a debate in Europe now. The Dutch government has decided that uh, ASML, a large semiconductor equipment manufacturer, is not going to be able to send certain machines that it, it, it produces to China. These machines are used to make advanced semiconductors. So then the question is, uh, there are German companies that uh, produce the optics and the lasers and the chemicals that go into these ASML machines. Are they going to uh, stop selling those directly to China? Uh, so there is a broader European debate about um, how far government should go in restricting firms uh, like this. And uh, I, I think uh, we're going to see where we end up. I think there are different views about where the red line should be. 
Mm. And if you read the Chinese reporting or speak to Chinese officials, it, it seems to me that they consistently think France and Germany are the so-called adults in the room, that they're the people who want to do business with China, that they're the people who matter the most in the EU context. And I think that's probably reflected in the fact that as we're speaking, the Chinese Premier Li Tiang is visiting Berlin and Paris this week. Is that a fair interpretation of where these two big economies are when it comes to China? Are they the most pragmatic quote marks, or at least more, most friendly towards China? Well, I mean, you do have countries like uh, Hungary, which I, I would say are, are perhaps even friendlier uh, <laughs> towards China. But Right, Hungary, who's taken the Belt and Road Initiative money and refuses to condemn China's position on the Russian invasion and yes. is generally quite close to Putin anyway. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But uh, I think Germany and France, uh, as we've seen in recent months with the uh, the trip by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and the trip by French President Emmanuel Macron to Beijing. Uh, Germany and France have uh, very strong economic interests in, in China, especially Germany. And a lot of German companies are heavily invested in the Chinese market. Uh, some, uh, particularly in the car sector, are very dependent on the Chinese market. So, uh, so Germany has traditionally viewed China as a lucrative market. And I think that has really shaped its approach. We're, we're seeing uh, a change now. Germany is going to be coming out with a, a China strategy early next month, we expect. And uh, we have a coalition now that is deeply divided on uh, the right approach. The, uh, the Greens who run the foreign and economy ministries are pushing for a more fundamental rethink of the relationship with China they have a more hawkish approach and are pushing very aggressively to, for Germany to reduce uh, its uh, economic dependencies on China. Uh, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, is more risk averse and is concerned that uh, a more confrontational approach with China could come back to haunt Germany, the economy, which is going through a very difficult period uh, with the cutoff of Russian energy. So there, there are competing interests here. In Berlin, but I think the uh, the government consultations, which are happening over the next day or two, are going to show that uh, Germany is intent on keeping China close to a certain extent, keeping dialogue alive. That it doesn't want to. Uh, take too confrontational of an approach with Beijing. In your reading of the situation, Noah, while you're in Berlin, do you think that there are people in Olaf Scholz's surrounding, or, or I don't mean the coalition, because as you say, the Greens are already very hawkish on China, but in his own party, people who worried that one of the reasons Germany's economy is in such a difficult situation at the moment is of over-reliance on Russia and Russian gas. So now if you're going to rely on China, that you're leading yourself into a similar situation a bit further down the line. Is there concern about that? Yes, I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had a big impact on the China debate here in Germany. Many big German companies had to shut down their operations in Russia almost overnight. I think the war also... Uh, highlighted the risks of an invasion of Taiwan by China, or even something that's stopped short of an, of an invasion, a blockade, or, or, or some sort of conflict in the Taiwan Strait. And that, of course, would have a, a much bigger impact on Germany, on German companies, on the broader economy than uh, Russia did, because the relationship between Germany and China, the economic relationship is much bigger, more far-reaching 
than the relationship with Russia uh, is or was. So yes, I think this has kind of, I don't know if you would call it a wake-up call, but it certainly has focused attention uh, not only in the government, but also in corporate boardrooms on the risks around uh, Taiwan and the risks of this close economic relationship with China. But that doesn't mean that everyone agrees on how you respond to that. Uh, And I think we do have differences within the government. As I said, Olaf Scholz, a bit more risk averse. We also have the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which is also a challenge for Germany. So I, I think the view in the chancery is we have a lot of economic challenges coming at us and we don't want to cut off a big market like China too precipitously uh, and, and, and shoot ourselves in the foot by doing so. Well, Noah, I, I want to just park that Russia invasion question to a little bit later, because I think you're right that it runs through so much of Europe's dealing with China that we should um, talk about it properly in a bit. But first of all, I'm just on, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the IRA, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Just, just tell listeners why that is such a big conversation in the EU at the moment. Well, I think what the U.S. Uh, has done with the IRA is is, is basically said uh, we're going to provide subsidies to green technology industry, but only industry that is producing in the U.S. So these subsidies are a a real magnet for uh, also for European companies uh, that are thinking about where to invest. Uh, so we have had some large companies. Uh, announcing that they will be uh, shifting investment to the U.S. Uh, Now, Europe has uh, responded uh, with a net zero industry act. Uh, It's also, uh, we expect it to uh, announce some sort of sovereignty fund, which helps um, manage the the subsidies, make sure that there aren't any distortions as certain countries uh, introduce subsidies Uh, of their own in Europe, that there aren't distortions to the single market. But uh, what we've seen so far is that the U.S. um, the U.S. incentives to invest in green technology are pulling uh, European businesses. I don't think we'll know quite uh, how uh, significant this shift is going to be for a while, but but certainly we're we're seeing companies announcing that they're investing heavily in the U.S. This is something that you know many people, especially uh, the French, you know, from President Macron downwards, has been protesting against the Biden administration for, and it it almost seemed to my read my reading of the situation that Biden didn't quite realize how much the EU would be annoyed about all of its um, domestic renewables industry being sucked to North America. Is it fair to say that Europeans are thinking? Well, this is still America first on some respects. Yes, well, I think a lot of people do uh, see it this way. The Biden administration's response has been, uh, well, feel free to go ahead and subsidize your own businesses in Europe. And I I think we're seeing Europe moving in that direction. But of course, uh, there is resistance to this and nobody wants a, a sort of a race to the bottom on subsidies that would would not be uh, uh, very efficient. If everybody is subsidizing, then that can create some problems in the transatlantic relationship. So yes, this has been a thorn in the side uh, of the Europeans. I think the Biden administration has, has made some concessions, but it's going ahead and it would really be up to Europe to respond to this. We, we've uh, seen part of the response already, but I, I think uh, we're going to have to see how that plays out over the coming months and years. 
I did also wonder if electric vehicles is one of those things that's going to drive France and Germany to be a little bit more hardline on China. You know, there have been headlines recently that Macron has been pushing for a so-called economic trade war with China when it comes to electric cars. He says that we must not repeat in the electric car market the mistakes we made with photovoltaics solar panels, where we created a dependency on Chinese industry. And obviously, Germany is also a massive automaker. We're hearing about all of these Chinese electric car makers coming into Europe this year. Some of them, BYD, for example, is selling more than Tesla already, internationally competitive. Do you see a situation down the line where that drives more competition between the two and these adults in the room are no longer so friendly towards China? Well, I think the shifting dynamics in the car industry have the potential to shift the debate in Germany in particular, which of course is uh, Europe's biggest car producer. You know, China is a sort of leapfrogged European manufacturers because of the shift to electric vehicles. It has moved faster and in part because of uh, massive uh, subsidies and, and, and government programs for the EV industry. And there is a big question now about how Europe and perhaps the U.S. responds to this because we are seeing there's a price war in electric vehicles in China at the moment. And uh, I I think there are indications that vehicle EVs from China are being uh, dumped on on the European market at lower prices. So the European Union introduced a foreign subsidies instrument Uh, recently. There's a question about whether this could fall uh, under that. And uh, there are also questions about, you know, how Europe is going to respond if cheap uh, uh, electric vehicles from China are flooding the European market. That could make it much more difficult for European car makers to kind of gain traction in this market. Uh, And you mentioned the the solar industry. Germany had an evolving solar industry 12 years ago that was uh, perhaps more advanced than China's, but uh, China uh, developed its industry very rapidly and, uh, and, and, and began selling cheaper solar panels on the, on the European market. And the, the German industry uh, uh, died out because of that. So certainly the Europeans don't want this to be repeated with, uh, with electric vehicles. Mm. And I also want to touch on some of the poorer nations in Eastern and Central Europe, uh, because in some ways, you know, they seem to be prime targets for Chinese investment. We've already mentioned Hungary, for example, being a recipient of the Belt and Road Initiative. A few years ago, China set up the 16 plus one framework for relations with 16 of these countries. The number has fluctuated <laughs> since then up and down. So I just wondered how successful has it been in this respect in China's courting of these poorer European nations? Well, I think the the 16 plus one format, which, as you said, has fluctuated. It was 17 plus one. Now it's 14 plus one. Hasn't worked out so well. I think uh, it's uh, this forum is is in tatters uh, to a certain extent because uh, many of the uh, countries uh, in Eastern Europe that hoped that this this format would lead to Chinese investment and also facilitate the export of their goods to China have been uh, very disappointed. And uh, there are countries like uh, Hungary and Serbia, uh, for example, which of course is outside the EU, which I think have, uh, have embraced this, uh, th- this format. But if you look at the Baltic countries that just 
you know, over the past few years have left the format. If you look at the Czech uh, Republic, if you look at a country like Romania, uh, even Poland, I think there's uh, there's widespread disappointment with the format and, and countries are not really participating actively in this format anymore. And of course, the Russia's war in Ukraine and China's position on the war has further soured many of these countries on uh, engagement with China. Yeah, and I, I was speaking to a Polish diplomat uh, recently who said that, you know, they were quite interested in the idea of Chinese investment when the Chinese first came knocking. Uh, but since then, there have been a few different infrastructure projects that have just really turned out to be poor quality, poorly built, and with not enough transparency. And so uh, really, these kind of companies kind of lost out the chance for China to kind of export its soft power, in, at least in Poland. Is that the reason, Noah, you think that, you know, when you say people have been disappointed about Chinese investment, is, it, is, is that the same kind of theme going on? I think every country has different experiences. I think Poland has had a few uh, bad experiences with uh, Chinese projects. Uh, I think We've also seen a sharp rise in uh, the trade deficits of Eastern European countries with China. So uh, a complaint that I often hear from the Poles is that their uh, exports to China have not increased significantly. On the other hand, Chinese exports to, to, to Poland and other countries in Eastern Europe have risen quite significantly. So so this is uh, it's disappointment about uh, the lack of investments or problems with the investments that uh, these countries have seen from China. Uh, It's uh, disappointment with the direction of the trade relationship uh, and then the tensions uh, because of China's support for Russia and uh, Russia's Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That that has added another layer to the the disappointment, the the tensions with with China. So this is a this is a combination of things. There are there are countries, for example, in in the Western Balkans, Montenegro, who have uh, gone into serious debt because of uh, big Chinese projects, a, a highway uh, a project, uh, which has uh, left left that country highly indebted, and and the project itself is not even complete years later. So some countries have had some very bad experiences, uh, and and sixteen plus one, fourteen plus one, seventeen plus one has not been a uh, has not been a, a solution. Mm. I mean, it strikes me as so interesting that China had this opportunity to really get some of these countries on side, but whether it's because the Belt and Road Initiative is actually quite haphazard on the ground or because some of the companies are not regulated enough, you know, it seems to me a massive waste of an opportunity here. When when I was talking to this Polish diplomat with a few other international diplomats, you know, they were keen to see what the Chinese could offer. And that opportunity seems to have been squandered. And as you say, now the Russian invasion has pretty much changed everything. Um, so so let, let's talk about that, because it, it's obvious, obviously, why post-Soviet states are nervous about the Russian invasion and why they're disappointed in the Chinese um, situation. Then there was that awful interview from the Chinese ambassador to France, Lu where he basically said that post-Soviet states have no basis for existence in law. But no, what I wanted to ask you was, is it fair to say that this, this impact of the Russian invasion goes across the entire continent such that France and Germany could be advocating for an even closer relationship with China if it wasn't for the fact that China was so ambivalent on the invasion and has been so far? Yes, I think that... Uh... Uh, China's position on the war in Ukraine has 
certainly had a big impact on uh, Europe's uh, relationship with China uh, over the past year, year and a half. I think uh, there were a host of problems in the relationship before that, economic issues, uh, but also human rights and a host of other issues, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang. But I think it has made coming out of the pandemic, especially with China opening up, it has made it uh, more difficult uh, for European countries to go back to business as usual with China. I think um, a lot of the engagement that we've seen, uh, we've seen a flurry of European leaders go to China over the past uh, months since China opened up. And a lot of those conversations have been about the uh, China's position on the, on, the, on the war in Ukraine. And it's what appears to be a deepening uh, relationship with with Russia. Xi Jinping has met with Putin uh, on a number of occasions over the past year, and they look pretty chummy when they're together. So, so this makes it much more difficult uh, for Europe and and European leaders to argue that uh, the relationship with China can return to some sort of semi normal uh, state. Uh, and I think the big fear in Europe is that. Uh, if China were to support Russia militarily, which it hasn't done so far, that that would, would fundamentally change the relationship. So I think there's a lot of concern in Europe that uh, China could take this step, depending on how the war evolves over the coming uh, months. Mm. And I wonder if the Chinese side really understands the depth of feeling in Europe surrounding this war, because it seems to me that they are... Well, I mean, it seems to me that they don't understand the depth of feeling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, difficult for me uh, to say. I think China has been uh, walking a very fine line on this. Um, more recently, uh, sending signals that uh, the Europeans perhaps want to want to hear. For example, uh, this twelve-point uh, position paper, which was uh, unveiled back in February, I think. Uh, sending a Chinese envoy to Kiev, Xi Jinping speaking with Ukraine's President Zelensky in recent months. So I, th I think China has, has, has tried to, without really shifting its position, has sent some signals to kind of calm things down with Europe. I think the question is whether there's any fundamental change in the position. I think so far there hasn't been any sign of that. Well, there was a theory that Xi announced his call to Zelensky after Macron visited Beijing, whether the theory is that Macron actually managed to get through to the dictator or that China was just trying to give Macron some face or using it as indeed as a divide and conquer method to say that, you know, when you're friendly to us, we will be supportive of Ukraine. How much do you think um, any of those theories have, have legitimacy? I'm sure President Macron thinks that he had something to do with it. Yeah, well, Xi Jinping has been very good at sort of drip feeding these European leaders uh, what they want. When Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, was in Beijing, she expressed his opposition to the use of uh, nuclear weapons. After Macron's trip, he, he spoke with Zelensky. But none of these, none of these steps are really uh, costing China anything. At the same time, they, they give European leaders, yeah, a little, a, a little goody and, and, and perhaps keep their hopes alive that China will be willing to play a constructive role in the Ukraine crisis. I think there is a realization that if any country has any influence over Russia, it's, it's China. So 
I think uh, many European leaders recognizing that uh, have said to themselves, we, we need to stay in touch with China, keep this dialogue alive. We need to do everything we can to sort of reach out to China and, and engage with them because the, uh, the alternative is pretty grim. As I said, China actively supporting Russia militarily or looking the other way if uh, Russia escalates the war, uses, for example, nuclear weapons, that would be uh, very uh, difficult for the Europe-China relationship. Yeah. So, Noah, we've we've talked a lot about different member states, uh, whether they're wealthier or poorer. Uh, we've mentioned the European Commission. Something we haven't mentioned is European Parliament, which, in my mind, seems to be much, much more on the hardline side when it comes to China, because they are the ones who need to ratify this comprehensive agreement on investment, this investment bill that um, China and the EU were talking about. Just overview, please, that entire episode with the CAI, because a few years ago, the Biden administration was really worried that China and the EU were getting closer through this investment agreement. And yet three years on, it's still not come to anything. Why is that? Yeah, well, the the story with this investment agreement is that uh, the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel at the end of 2020, just weeks before uh, uh, Biden was coming into office, pushed this deal through, uh, which had been seven years in the making. And uh, that did elicit, uh, I think, a, a strong reaction, not necessarily publicly, but certainly uh, behind closed doors from members uh, of the Biden team. I remember Jake Sullivan, who, who was later to become his Biden's national security advisor, sent out a tweet, which uh, was very diplomatic, but uh, did make very clear that uh, uh, the Biden administration was was not uh, amused by this. But, you know, within three months uh, of this deal being uh, sealed, European member states agreed uh, to some very targeted narrow sanctions against a number of individuals related to uh, the human rights abuses in, in, in Xinjiang. And China's response to that was to sanction members of the European Parliament, European think tanks, European foundations, and a number of European politicians. So Across party divides. Across party divides. So the European Parliament needed to ratify this agreement known as the CHI with its members on a Chinese sanctions list. Of course, they uh, pushed back against that and, and they said, we're not going to ratify this. And I would say uh, there are still people who, who support this deal. I think uh, Charles Michel, the uh, president of the European Council, has made very clear that he likes it. I know there are people in Olaf Scholz's uh, entourage who, who still think it's, it's worthwhile having. But I think the consensus in Europe these days is really that this deal is not going to see the light of day, that um, uh, China is unlikely to remove its sanctions unless it has guarantees that this deal is going to go through and nobody in Europe can provide those guarantees. So I think we're, we're stuck. And I think uh, this deal is also a deal from another time. Um, this was before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was before China's economic coercion against Lithuania. It was at the beginning of the pandemic. So a different era. And I don't think this agreement in its current form is going to be revived. Mm. I mean, it just it goes back to that point of um, China not doing things to, for its own interests in that sense. I mean, I can understand the anger from the Beijing side. You know, if you're going to sanction us, we'll sanction you. But to sanction in the kind of extensive way that they did seems to me to be shooting themselves in the foot, as we've seen. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if they had to do it all over again, uh, perhaps they would do it differently. I think uh, the message that uh, Chinese diplomats, including the new ambassador uh, to the EU, Fu Song, has uh, sent behind closed doors, at least, has been, we'd really like this to go away. And so I, I, I do think that the asymmetric response by China to these very targeted Xinjiang sanctions has not worked in China's interest because this Kai was a deal uh, which in terms of driving a wedge between Europe and the US was was the ideal uh, vehicle. And now it's uh, sitting in the deep freeze. Well, Noah, on the subject of driving a wedge, you know, we talked about various different opinions and attitudes to China, but how much does uh, Beijing try to exploit these fractures? Um, it was interesting that in Macron's visit to Beijing, while he had a six-hour meeting with President Xi in Guangzhou, Ursula von der Leyen was pretty much put on the kiddies table, essentially, uh, because she had said some pretty harsh words on China. Well, not even that harsh, but just relatively more hardline. Uh, so, Noah, what, what do you think? How, how much does Beijing exploit these um, differences? Well, I think the Chinese side uh, would much rather deal with a disunited Europe, uh, deal with individual member states. It would rather not deal with uh, EU institutions at all, probably. And, you know, the European Commission has been instrumental in pushing uh, European member states towards uh, a harder line on China. If you think back to the strategic outlook document uh, in uh, March 2019, which described China as a partner competitor, but also a systemic rival. If you look at Ursula von der Leyen's speech from March 30th of this year, which uh, advocated uh, for a de-risking from China, the, the commission has been pushing member states in a, in, in a more hawkish uh, direction. I think that uh, has been justified by the facts on the ground. So China would very much prefer to uh, invite uh, Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron and uh, have tea and uh, do business deals with countries like Germany and France. I think in the past this has worked, right? China has held out its vast uh, market uh, as a, a carrot for the big European member states and it has worked uh, that they have uh, toned down their, their criticism of China. But I think it, that's becoming a more difficult sell, in part because the Chinese economy is uh, facing some very serious headwinds uh, at the moment, but also because the, the political relationship and the, the contentious issues in the relationship, human rights, coercion, et cetera, have just become uh, too difficult to ignore. And. France and Germany, I mean, do they make it easy for the European Commission and institutions to be pushed away? Because I, I think it was in your newsletter that I read, Noah, that, you know, this visit that Li Tian is making to Berlin uh, and Paris this week, that actually Brussels had wanted some of its own representatives there, but certainly uh, Schultz's team had pushed them away. Yes, well, the uh, the German coalition agreement, so the, the sort of governing blueprint that... Uh, the current German government unveiled in 2021 when it, it, it took office, said that uh, it wanted to adopt a more European approach uh, to China, um, including making uh, the government consultations, which are happening this week, more uh, European, giving them a more, more of a European flavor. So it's not just a Germany and China talking with each other, 
So that could involve uh, inviting officials from the European Commission or the European External Action Service or from other member states. According to my information, this is not going to happen. I think the Chancery has pushed back against this, even though it's in the coalition agreement. Uh, so I don't, I don't think these German-Chinese consultations are going to have a very European flavor to them. And uh, as we saw from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's trip uh, to China uh, back in November of last year, he decided against going there with Emmanuel Macron. He decided to go there on his own. I think that's understandable given it was his first trip as chancellor. But we haven't seen the big European countries really taking the steps necessary to push Europe in a more unified uh, direction vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. I think China has been very good at uh, selectively offering carrots or using sticks to, to push uh, various European countries in the direction that it wants. So finally, then, Noah, that leads me to my last question. Um, what are the chances of a unified approach in Europe to China? Would you put money on it? Well, I think we have to be realistic about this. We're talking about 27 uh, European countries. I think we have seen a lot of progress over the past five years or so. There is now a common European language on China. Uh, China is now described as a, as, a, as a partner, competitor, and systemic rival, has been for the past four years. There seems to be a European embrace of the term uh, de-risking. So I think we're moving in the right direction. And it's also important to remember that some European member states like to hide behind the European Commission. So there's a lot of steps that the Commission has taken, including the Xinjiang sanctions, that all member states uh, approved, but they wouldn't necessarily take these sort of more confrontational steps uh, on their own. Uh, so I, I think we're moving in the right direction. Ultimately, this will depend on China's behavior. If we see a shift in uh, Chinese policies and, and uh, the uh, assertiveness and, and, and authoritarian tilt of the country, then I think we'll see changes uh, in Europe. But there are no indications of that, really. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, was just <laughs> pointed to a third term. And I, I don't think we're going to see a major shift in policy from China. That's the lessons of the past, uh, of the past few years. Mm. Noah Barkin, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.